Paul's first letter to Timothy. I'm going to take a break. Maybe you're crying uncle and you're thankful. We're going to take a break from Paul's letter to the Romans for this week and next week. And I, as I've thought about this through this last week, uh, it's just seemed to me that this warrants um, actually a couple of sermons from this passage. And so uh, this week and next week we'll be looking at this passage. I believe I mentioned this in the letter that you should have received from me uh, a week or so ago. Um, I hope that you've read this, uh, had some time to think about it. What we want to do this week and next is, is uh, unpack this passage a little bit as we seek from the Lord his mind and his guidance uh, concerning his church. So read with me at 1 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 15. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. This is God's word given for his people. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, come to be with us especially as we, uh, as we come to your word. Um, we need your spirit. We need you to help us understand, to think your thoughts after you, and then to understand how your thinking works itself out uh, in our life together as a congregation. So help us, bless us, we pray. Give us understanding, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. uh, We're taking this break um, from...
for a couple of weeks um, because uh, because we're blessed. We're we're marvelously blessed. God has been uh, tremendously good to us over the course of really a couple of decades. Those who have been here uh, for 20 years um, and who have prayed and who have persevered and who have longed to see the day when a building would be built and a, a congregation would house that building and and would experience the grace of Jesus and and all of the blessings of Jesus. We're we're that people, um, and God has been kind to us uh, over the course of the last handful of years as well. And as a result of that, we because we have more people filling these seats, these chairs, what comes with more people is greater need. We're we're experiencing what the church experienced in Acts chapter 6. If you read Acts chapter 6, the church was growing, it was was expanding, and as the church grew, there were more needs, there were greater needs. And so the apostles, I'd encourage you to read this passage maybe this week, because I'll be referring to it this morning and next week. The apostles recognized that there was the need for additional help. And so it fell actually to the apostles, whose responsibility was to give themselves diligently to the word of God and to prayer, the the basic shepherding functions of the church. It fell to them and the church to identify other people who would come alongside them to minister to people and to meet these needs. Well, that's where we are. We find ourselves in that place, and it's a, it's a great place to be. It's a wonderful place to be. Uh, and so we are setting aside these next two weeks, beginning today and through the 17th of April, uh, as a time uh, within which members of the congregation um, may nominate individuals for the office of deacon. And it's, uh, it just seemed appropriate uh, right thing, Zach and Glenn and I have talked about this, to preach a couple of sermons. I initially was going to preach one, but I think two sermons is probably the better thing to do, to preach a couple of sermons, um, providing us with, um, with background, biblical background, to how we do what we do uh, here at Christ the King in this Presbyterian church. We recognize that folks are coming from lots of different points of the compass and, and our particular practices and the way our church government works and functions may be unfamiliar to you. I do go over these things some in the new member class, but not all of you have had the opportunity to be there or uh, to have all of this elaborated. So that basically is what I'd like to do this week and next. I, I really want for us to understand um, how we understand as Presbyterians Being Presbyterian doesn't make you a Christian, remember. I mean, I try to tell people that the first thing we are is Christians, okay? And the centerpiece of who and what we are is the gospel of Jesus Christ as that gospel is made known to us in his word. That's at the heart of this thing, Jesus and the scriptures, okay? But we do have a particular form of government, and what I hope to do in these next couple of weeks, is help us all sort of get on the same page regarding how that government works, its offices, uh, the office of elder and deacon, how they function, 
um, and how we as an entire congregation participate uh, in this process of nominating and electing officers. So there are several considerations that I want us to to think about as we come to this, uh, this period of time, this next two weeks as we uh, nominate and then eventually um, present to the congregation those uh, whom we as elders believe meet the qualifications that you find here. Several considerations, there are five of them, um, and we'll, we'll talk about them over these next two weeks. Um, five things that I want for us to keep in mind as we do this. And here's the first of them. Uh, the first of them is the primacy and the centrality of the scriptures. Now, why do I begin there? Well, I begin there because as with respect to everything else that we do in the life of this church, all that we are and all that we do, our thinking has to be shaped by God's thinking. I've said this in this, in this church and other settings. Um, there are two things that I know to be true about me, and even if you're not willing to admit them about you, I know they're true of you as well. Two things. I am finite and I am flawed. I don't know everything that there is to know. And you won't be amazed to know this about me. Much of what I know, I actually know incorrectly, which is to say I'm wrong about some things. Now, I know that about you as well. Again, you may not want to acknowledge it or admit it, but I think we all have lived long enough to know something about our finitude. We don't know everything there is to know. Whatever the realm or whatever the sphere of knowledge, we don't know everything that there is to know. I think we're also all old enough to recognize as we look over our shoulders, as we think about the past, I think we're all mature enough here to recognize that we have been wrong about things in the past. I'm finite and I'm flawed. And in a world where there are so many voices speaking in our direction and seeking to speak with authority, seeking to say, in effect, this is what is true. This is what you must believe. And by the way, everybody on the planet who can think and reflect, has an opinion about what is true and not only what they believe should be believed, but they believe that you should believe what they believe as well. Even people who think that there's no absolute truth. They're absolutely convinced that you should absolutely believe that there is no absolute truth. There's one absolute for them at least. In the midst of all of those voices, what we believe here in this church and what we believe in our denomination and what I had to affirm when I was ordained as a minister of the gospel in the Presbyterian Church in America is that there is one voice that is spoken. It is a voice that knows everything that there is to know and it knows it all correctly. And that voice is God's voice. And God in grace and mercy has spoken into our world. And he has preserved what he has spoken. And the preservation of what he has spoken 
is his word, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. And we come to it with a confidence in it because we believe God is behind it, that he is the ultimate author of it. Now, Paul has written this letter. He's written it to Timothy. Timothy is a pastor in a particular place. And Paul is writing to him as his mentor and as an apostle to give him, Timothy, guidance concerning the conduct of life in the church. That's why I wanted to read verses 14 and 15. Paul wants to be able to come to him and talk to him about these things personally, but he says, verse 14, if I'm delayed, or verse 15, if I'm delayed, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So he's writing this letter to Timothy, anticipating that he might not be able to come to where Timothy is, which is probably in the vicinity of Ephesus, where Timothy is a pastor overseeing a number of churches. And so Paul is writing this letter to provide him with guidance. But we understand that there is an ultimate author behind the earthly author, and that ultimate author is the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives this instruction not only for Timothy in his day, but for us in our day. This instruction is his word to us, and he gives it to us because he loves us, because he knows how life should be ordered in the church, uh, and because he loves his people, he speaks. And so the first thing, as we come to anything with respect to the, to the Christian life or life in the church, uh, is to say very clearly, we submit to the word of God in these matters. Now, I have to tell you, I don't always like what the Bible says. I don't, and you don't either. I don't always like it. But the thing that I can be confident about is that when God speaks, he speaks from limitless knowledge that is absolutely perfect, and he speaks for the well-being of his people. And so what we have here in these verses is God's loving communication with his church for the well-being of the church. And here's the second thing. As we come to this passage and we begin to to drill down into this and, and get into this a bit. And this is a critically important thing. It's really, really important to be clear about this. And that is the nature, the nature of the office of deacon and the nature of the office of elder. What we understand is that these offices are essentially spiritual offices. The office of elder and deacon. And what we mean by that is that they originate with Jesus Christ, who is the king and head of his church. Now notice in verse 1, Paul writes, If anyone desires or aspires to the office of overseer, and the overseer is the elder as distinguished from the deacon, if anyone desires or aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And then what follows in the verses following that verse is a series of qualifications. And then in verse 8, Paul writes, likewise. And then what follows uh, in verse 8 is a series of qualifications. Now, what is Paul doing? Well, here you have, in the case of elders and deacons, people who aspire to these offices. 
It's true of both, people who aspire to these offices, someone who desires to be in this place. But you see, desire is not enough. I'd love to be able to dunk a basketball. (laughs) Just doesn't work. I told you I'd love my dream before I die is to shoot 64. Not going to happen. Okay. I mean, there can be desire without the other things that are necessary for that desire to be realized. And Paul, as he writes, Timothy recognizes that people will be attracted to these two offices, the office of elder and deacon. But then, after the desire, there comes these qualifications. And they are qualifications given ultimately by Christ so that the church might have a standard against which to measure the desire. And what is behind this all, again, is Jesus as king and head of his church, wanting to give to his church, desiring to give to his church, those who will care for and serve his church, and then also giving the qualifications that the church is to employ as the church before Jesus Christ, who is king and head of the church, measures the desire that gets expressed from those who do aspire to these offices. Jesus is behind the whole thing. And when we say that these offices are spiritual offices, what we're saying is that behind a person's desire is a calling. And that calling originates with Jesus. And so Jesus, who is the one who calls and then the one who qualifies, Jesus gives the qualifications that the person who is being called must conform to in order to serve in those capacities. Okay, am I making sense? Jesus calls and then he gives the standards against which that call is measured. And that's what you have here. Now, here's a point of application. And I think this is really critical for those of us who live in a democracy. This is very, very important. When this congregation elects deacons and elders, which we will do, we will elect deacons in a few weeks. When this congregation elects deacons and elders, we are not so much electing as we are confirming. In a democracy, you elect people to represent you. You know how this American government works. It is government of the people and by the people and for the people. This government exists and is established on the basis of the consent of the governed, right? The Church of Jesus Christ is not a democracy. The Church of Jesus Christ is a benevolent monarchy. Jesus is the king, he is the Lord, but he is a benevolent king and Lord. And Jesus, the one who establishes the church, again, is the one who calls and qualifies those whom he gives to his church for the well-being of the church and gives these standards against which that call is measured. And so when a group of individuals is presented to a congregation for election, you understand 
You're not electing them to represent your interests. Not in the way that a democracy works. You are electing them to represent the interests of Jesus the King. In your electing them, you are in fact confirming the call of Jesus Christ upon them. And the wonderful irony of this is that as you confirm that call and elect them to those offices, you actually are electing them to serve your highest interests because Jesus' interests are your interests. Okay? So you're not electing in the the sense that a democracy works. You are confirming, based on qualifications that Jesus gives to us, those whom Jesus himself is calling and whom he qualifies to serve in his church in these capacities. Now let me say something about the process here, um, because we, we do believe that this process is consistent with the manner in which the scriptures suggest to us that these officers are elected. We have nomination forms uh, that are available, as Zach said, in the foyer. This is what we call a silent nomination. Um, You are free to nominate, but we would ask you that you do that anonymously, that you not speak to the person whom you're nominating, but that you simply fill out one of the forms and submit that nomination to me or to Zach or to Glenn. Why is that? Well, there there are a couple of practical reasons for it. In a church that is growing, as I mentioned in my letter, it could be, though I'm doing the best I can to communicate this whole process, it could be that there would be misunderstanding about who properly should be nominated. Um, It could be that there would be misunderstanding about who can do the nominating. Members, those who are members in good standing here at Christ the King, may nominate. Those who are nominated need to meet the qualifications that are outlined in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus. It could cause embarrassment for you. It could cause awkwardness for us if you nominate and are not a member, or if you nominate someone who isn't a member, or if you nominate someone who, in our judgment, as those who are entrusted with caring for the proper application of the word of God, Nominating, you may nominate someone who we don't believe meets those qualifications. In order to avoid, avoid awkwardness at any level, we would just ask that this nomination process be what we call a silent nomination process. Now, the reason we're doing that is because we see, for example, in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, and I'll just mention the, the verse to you, that when Paul and Barnabas went back to the churches that they had previously planted, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for each of the churches. Now, the manner in which those elders were appointed in each of the churches is very interesting. The word that's translated in the text, appoint, actually means to elect by the raising of a hand. So there are, there are different opinions among the commentators about how exactly to understand that. In some places, the electing by the raising of the hand is the actual act of ordination. But by some understandings, 
the electing by the raising of a hand is the congregation's participation in confirming what the elders, if you will, Paul and Barnabas, have done in presenting candidates to the congregation for their election. The point is that Paul and Barnabas had final responsibility for making the presentation of those who did meet the qualifications to the churches for their establishment in that office. And that responsibility now falls to elders. It falls to elders to examine nominees, to ensure that they meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and also Titus 1, and then those who have been uh, qualified to stand before the congregation are then presented to the congregation for election. And it's our opinion that it just it makes that process easier if the nomination process is a silent nomination. Okay? So that's the process that we're encouraging you and asking you to follow. Use the nomination form. Make the, the uh, nominations private. Uh, give those nominations uh, to Zach or to Glenn or to me. And then it's our responsibility, as was true with Paul and Barnabas, it's our responsibility to review those nominations to ensure those being nominated do meet the qualifications. Okay, so, but, but let's understand that behind all of this is the invisible king and head of the church who calls, who puts the desire in the heart of the one who seeks the office, and who then gives qualifications for that office so that there is a standard against which this desire can be measured. By the way, you may notice in the bulletin that we're doing a Q&A tonight, and then we're going to pray after the Q&A. If you've got questions about all of this, come tonight. We can talk about it further and then pray about this whole process. So, first consideration, the centrality of the Scriptures. Second consideration, the nature of the office, that it is a spiritual office that originates with Jesus Christ. And then here's the third consideration, the qualifications for the office or eligibility for the office. You find those here, as I said, in 1 Timothy and also in Titus. You find another list, actually, of qualifications in Acts chapter 6. Uh, when the church in Acts chapter 6 was confronted with needs, uh, more help was needed to meet those needs. Uh, and the church, the church was called upon to find those men in the churches, Stephen and Philip and the others, who were men full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the grace of God, uh, who then served in that capacity. So you have three places, Acts 6, 1 Timothy 3, and Titus 1, where these um, uh, qualifications are enumerated. Now, let me deal with a very conspicuous aspect of this that may cause consternation, which is to say heartburn. I hope not serious heartburn, but some heartburn for us. And I want to do everything I can to relieve that heartburn. Here's the thing that is conspicuous, whether you look at Acts chapter 6 or 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1. It is men that are in view. It is men that are in view. Not all men, but qualified men. Men who meet the qualifications 
that are enumerated in these passages. It is pretty clear to me, and I've wrestled with this across more than three decades in ministry, it is pretty clear to me, and it is the conviction of our, uh, our elders and of our uh, denomination, that the offices of elder and deacon are restricted to qualified men. Not all men are eligible to be elders and deacons, but the offices are restricted uh, to men. The personal pronouns that are used in 1 Timothy 3 and also in Titus are all masculine, first-person pronouns, singular pronouns. You see it in verse 1, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, and then those pertaining to deacons as well, verse 8. The personal pronouns uh, are all masculine pronouns. That word likewise that is there in verse 8 connects what follows with what precedes. And so deacons likewise are to be qualified men who meet the requirements that are cited here. What further confirms this, it seems to me, is that in verse 11, the apostle refers, as the ESV has it, to the wives who must likewise Be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. The word in the text actually is women. It's translated wives, but the word in the text actually is women. And there's a difference of opinion among commentators as to whether what is being referred to in that group is the wives of deacons or another group of women in the church, who work alongside the deacons and the elders in the ministry of the church. And I will just tell you that the commentators are divided. I'm inclined to think that this refers to a group of women, not just deacons' wives, but to a group of women who worked alongside the deacons, supporting and assisting the work of the ministry in which they were engaged. Um, And it seems to me to be preferred um, simply because of the use of the word and also because it does set this group of people in distinction from elders and deacons. Elders and deacons meet certain qualifications, and then there is this group of spiritually mature, godly women who work alongside elders and deacons in the midst of the ministry and life of the church. So both in terms of what is said explicitly about elders and deacons and the personal pronouns that are used, and then this reference to a group of women differentiated from, distinguished from the elders and deacons, it seems to me to uh, be pretty clear that there is a third group of people involved in ministry in the life of the church. There are elders, there are deacons, and there are the women. And I'll just suggest to you that I think that comports perfectly or conforms perfectly to what Paul's experience was. Um, The last thing in the world that I want for people to think is that there's no place for the ministry of women in the life of this church because that isn't the case. There is all kinds of opportunity for ministry in the life of this church just as there was all kinds of opportunity for ministry with Paul and in Paul's ministry as he ministered the gospel. You remember 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul commends Uodia and Syntyche, two women who were co-laborers with him, who worked alongside him in the ministry of the gospel. They were partners in some form or fashion. Exactly what they did, exactly how that ministry worked itself out, we don't know. But he gives them this, uh, this marvelous standing as co-laborers in the gospel with him, an apostle. Romans chapter 16, verse 1, uh, Paul commends uh, Phoebe uh, and the church in her house as one who is a servant of the church. And then a little bit later in Romans 16, he commends Junia, a woman whom he describes as being highly respected among the apostles. So we're not saying in this that there is no place for, uh, for women in the life and ministry of the church. We need the total giftedness of the life of the church. This is one of the things I'm going to say next week at the Vision Dinner. We need the total giftedness represented in this church to be functioning for this church to grow into maturity in Christ Jesus. And that includes all of us. Using our gifts, participating in appropriate ways, participating um, with respect to those gifts and our appropriate calling. So we're not saying that there's no place in ministry uh, for women in the life of the church. We're saying exactly the opposite as we look at 1 Timothy 3 and we consider the practice of the Apostle Paul. But what we are saying is that these offices, the office of elder and deacon in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, Acts chapter 6, these offices are restricted And the analogy that the Apostle Paul uses, and the word shows up three times in this passage, the analogy that that Paul uses is the analogy of the household or the family. You see it in verse 5, you see it in verse 12, and then you see it in verse 15. The household of God is a synonym, a metaphor for the church of God. The church is God's family. And I'm, I'm convinced that that metaphor is intentional, it's not haphazard, and it's designed to take us back to the fundamental and basic unit of human society and in the church, which is the family. And when the family is created, when the family is established, There is an equality of persons, Genesis 1 and 2. The equality of persons extends to parents and children. It incorporates the whole of the family unit. But while there is an equality of persons, there is an economy of function. There is a difference of function in the family. And here's the thing that I'm convinced of, again, Um, I've been thinking about this stuff for 30 years, which doesn't mean I'm right about it. I just want you to know that I've been thinking about it for a long time. When the scriptures refer to husbands as the head of the household, here's what I'm convinced husbands are charged with. They are charged with being defenders and protectors. That's what they are charged with. That is what Adam was to have done in the garden. 
He was to have stood between his wife, his family, and the whole garden and the invasion of an evil and alien force. He was to be a defender and protector. He was to be one who would cultivate in that family and in that place an environment in which all of the individuals in that family and in that, that place could flourish and give expression to their unique giftedness. He was to defend and protect and ensure fruitfulness. He didn't do it. He failed. And the whole experiment has been plunged into the misery and the suffering and all of the rest of this mess that Jesus has come to rescue us from because he's the better Adam. And what does Jesus do as the better Adam? He delivers a people out of bondage and he is their defender and their protector who himself is committed to their flourishing. That's what Jesus is committed to. And he's committed to it for every member of his household. And so what is it that elders and deacons are to do, generally speaking, in the midst of the life of the church? They are to assume in the household of God the very roles and responsibilities that husbands and fathers are to assume in the context of their natural families. They are to be defenders and protectors. They are to emulate Jesus, who is at one and the same time. This is really interesting. I'll explore this a little more with you next week. They are to emulate Jesus. I I tell you, this makes me tremble to say this, because I know how far short I fall of this. Elders and deacons, and I'm an elder, and Zach is an elder, and Jim Davis is a deacon, and Glenn Gravengood is an elder, and Andy Blanzol is a deacon, and Charles D'Andrade is a deacon. Elders and deacons are to emulate Jesus, who was both the elder, the bishop of our souls, and the deacon, the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what elders and deacons are supposed to do. Did we all just lose our jobs? Do you understand this? That when someone senses a desire to be in either of these offices, senses a desire, is called to either of these offices, called by Jesus Christ, the king and head of the church, that officer is being summoned to follow Jesus in the very same path, to lay down his life as a defender and protector of the church of Jesus Christ and one whose responsibility is to ensure the fruitfulness, the flourishing of the church of Jesus Christ. The call to ministry is a call to death, friends. It's not a call to a badge on your sleeve. It's not a call to a name on your bulletin. It's a call to death. And these offices, which do require, I've read through these qualifications again, and I thought, my goodness, I'm doing this? These qualifications are very high qualifications and standards. And you'll see, we'll see this next week, because character, character is what matters. Not function, not duty, 
the character. And essentially the character both of elders and deacons is a character in which that person is determined when and where necessary to lay down his life for the well-being of the family. That's what fathers are supposed to do. And that's what elders and deacons are supposed to do in the context of the church. Now, again, I want to outline this further next week um, as we'll talk um, talked about scripture. We've talked about the nature of the office. We've talked some about eligibility and qualifications. We've talked some about how women do fit into this thing. I want to talk next week more deeply about the qualifications and the duties of officers. But I want to come back to this, to this matter of the whole of the body of Christ laboring and working together side by side for the well-being of the church and the cause of the gospel. Elders and deacons are charged with defending and protecting and ensuring that an environment is created in which the members can flourish, flourish spiritually, flourish in terms of their giftedness. And we all labor side by side with our respective callings in this. And I really, I really feel, I, I think because of, uh, because of the culture in which we live, I feel so constrained to try somehow to reinforce the importance, the value, the common laboring dimension of men and women together in the life of the church. We cannot do what needs to be done without the gifts of women. We can't. I'll just close with this illustration. There's a wonderful scene in the return of the king, I think it's in the return of the king, the third of the Tolkien trilogy, in which Aragorn is going to lead the good guys in battle from Helm's Deep against the bad guys. And as they're preparing to go out to battle, Aragorn brandishes his saber and whips his saber around. And Eowyn, who is the daughter of Theoden, king of Rohan, comes up behind him and she whips out her sword as well. And she brandishes her sword. And it's a marvelous picture of the cooperative element, the cooperative dimension of the church of Jesus Christ in a warfare against the kingdom of darkness. There are those who lead, who defend, who protect. There are those who in the environment of having been protected and being led, use and employ their gifts for the common good. We are all in this together. Every saber, every knife needs to be brandished in this warfare that we're engaged in together as the kingdom of light in the midst of the world against the kingdom of darkness. So I want, as we think about this, to encourage us to think in terms of the total usefulness and use of all of the gifts that God has given to his church. So we begin with scripture. We understand the nature of the office. We think a little bit about eligibility and qualifications, but we understand that we are in this together. And next week we'll look in greater detail at the duties, the particular duties of the specific offices. So let's pray together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for 
speaking the truth because you possess the truth to us for our good. Give us grace, um, humbly, um, wisely, uh, to submit to your word. And, oh God, would you employ the total giftedness of this group of people and those whom you would add to this group of people for the glory and honor of your Son and for the expanding of his kingdom out into the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.